Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you ladies this morning. Really glad to be uh, working through the material this morning. John Calvin said the two most important areas of knowledge are knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. And so hopefully uh, this study of this uh, blue chart this morning will allow us to dive into those things. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Oh God, we need your help. We do not think your thoughts naturally. Uh, They don't come to us all by themselves. We are dependent. We need you. We need you to understand you, and we need you to understand ourselves. We pray that you would help us, and we pray that uh, this discussion this morning would be an encouragement to us um, that we can be shepherds of our hearts, and an encouragement to us that we must be shepherds of our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. I want to give you the conclusion up front And then I'll make sure and repeat it at the end. But I want you to know where we're going so that all the information we look at this morning, you kind of know where it fits and why we're talking about it. Uh, When we think about discipline one, that you must be a shepherd over your own heart, that you must shepherd your heart to meet with the God of the word by coming to the word of God on a daily basis. Uh, This is such a critical enterprise for us. And I want us to think about discipline one, not just in terms of what am I doing in my Bible time in the morning, as if I could close my Bible, walk away, and then I don't have to be a steward over my insides anymore, right? I don't have to shepherd my heart after eight o'clock when the last sip of coffee is done and my Bible's closed. The goal of bringing your heart before the word of God in the morning, uh, bringing your heart before the word of God to meet with the God of the word is so that your interaction with God transcends that morning Bible time and goes with you throughout the day, right? Uh, God is omnipresent. He's not just devotional present, right? And the goal, as, as Janet said earlier, is to hide his word in our heart um, so that we know how to live before him, to help us fight sin, to help us live for his glory, to help him, uh, us worship him. And so that these things bleed out into those relationships around us in D2 and D3. So when we think about being a shepherd over our own hearts, meet with God in his word. And then let that shepherding mindset, that shepherding discipline transcend uh, your time in the morning throughout the day. And let me just say that you can shepherd your heart because you are a Christian. You must shepherd your heart because you're not yet perfectly conformed to Christ. You can shepherd your heart because you are not what you once were. You must shepherd your heart because you are not yet what you will be. You can shepherd your heart because, Christian, you're not a slave of sin. You must shepherd your heart because you still sin. You can shepherd your heart because, Christian, good news, you have two natures. You must shepherd your heart because, Christian, bad news you have two natures. You can shepherd your heart because you have newfound capacities by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in your life. New abilities, new power, new emotions, new affections. A whole new palette of capacities to live for and love God. But you must shepherd your heart because you also have old tendencies. You can shepherd your heart because you have a new heart. But you must shepherd your heart because your heart is deceptive, vulnerable, 
and at times your enemy. And we need to think through this. The, the reason the blue chart exists comes from the question, well, wait a second. If I have a new heart and Jesus says all the sin that happens in my life is due to what's in my heart, how does that work together? I mean, if God is the one who gives me a new heart, did God give me something that is the source of sin? You need to understand that what you have in a new heart is a completely new situation of the inner man. And it is new by addition, not new by subtraction or replacement. In other words, your old inner man, your old inner person comes into the table of the Christian life. But what's added to that old person are new capacities, new abilities, new desires that come from God and are good. And those get poured into the mold of who you were before to make you a new creature. You're not what you used to be. You can do things you never could do before. But because you're not what you will be, what you will be, we're going to go this direction. You're not what you will be. You must shepherd your heart. When we talk about a mixed condition, older theologians talked about having two natures. We can talk about having two natures, the old nature and the new nature, that which comes from God. Or we can talk about a mixed condition. It's the same idea, really. But we're talking about the fact that in addition to who you were before you knew Christ, God has given you new things. So uh, that's the purpose of the blue chart. By the way, you must know that the, the promises of a new heart in the new covenant, every single one of them, from Deuteronomy 30 about a circumcised heart to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of a new heart in the new covenant, all the way through, every single conversation about that is a promise given to Israel when God will redeem Israel and give them a heart to love him. Now, in Romans 11, we discover that we Gentiles are grafted in like a wild olive tree into the natural olive branch. And so we benefit from promises God made to Israel. I say that just for the big caveat. If you're reading your Bible and you come to New Heart Passages and you say, wait a second, this was written to Israel. Hermeneutically, does this apply to me? I would say this, you and I as Gentiles benefit from the spiritual privileges promised to Israel because we're grafted in. So even though you're never going to find a passage that says new hearts are promised to Gentiles, it is a truth and we can uh, get there by engrafting hermeneutically. Um, and so we're comfortable saying, yes, I have a new heart. Does that make sense? We're borrowing language from promises God made to Israel to represent a spiritual truth that is actually demonstrably true of Gentiles who believe the gospel. And any Jews today who believe the gospel, right? Not in fulfillment of the new covenant promise to national Israel, but a personal benefit, beneficiary of God's promises. That was an aside. Just so we're all clear, you read your Bible in the new heart, um, we do participate in these spiritual benefits. That's not the same thing as fulfillment. So uh, what I want to do this morning is um, you, you can have this open and you've got some printed handout sheets. This is a three panel brochure, right? Three panel brochure. Um, and the reason it's in three panels is it because it describes the three states of humanity that believers in Jesus Christ experience. An unregenerate state, a regenerate state and the eternal state. Okay? Not a Christian, a Christian on the earth, and then a believer in heaven. Okay? But we're going to add a panel this morning to give us a little bit of a context. 
even though the first panel doesn't apply to anybody in this room, uh, we're going to add one over here. And we're going to call this one pre-fall. Right? And the reason it doesn't apply to anybody in this room is because it only applied to two human beings ever. Right? And their names were Adam and Eve. Okay? So we're going to go through what we'll call the four states of man. Pre-fall, post-fall, post-conversion, and the eternal state. Okay? Um, and I want you to know I lean heavily on a work by Thomas Boston called Human Nature in its Fourfold State. Uh, if you want to read a good old book with old words uh, on this topic, uh, it's probably the best around. So uh, if you go read that and you say, wait a second, Smedley cheated. He got all his material. Well, Thomas Boston got it from the Bible. Thomas Boston tipped me off. I benefited tremendously. Okay, so uh, we're going to use his uh, framework for this. And really, his book is was the genesis of even the outline of the blue chart. We just left off the Adam Eve part. Uh, Thomas Boston is the author, and the title is Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. <laughs> so, um, what we're going to do, I, I want you to see what man was like before the fall, because it's going to help us to see how bad was the fall, and it's going to give us hope for what God always designed man to be that we're going to be redeemed ultimately unto in a permanent and even better state than this. Okay, but we have to have a high view of this first to get there. So we're going to add a panel, uh, panel pre-1 or pre-fall, um, and we're talking about Adam and Eve. So in, in the garden, in uh, the, the first pages of Genesis, you know, you have two chapters devoted to mankind without sin, at the beginning, and two chapters devoted to mankind without sin at the end, Revelation 21 and 22. Everything in between is a mess, right? So let's talk about the beginning. Uh, and, and what I want to deal with man uh, in terms of his relationship to several categories. Uh, we'll talk about man and his relationship to sin, man and his relationship to work, man and his relationship to the creation and man and his relationship to God himself. Okay, and, and, and these are somewhat arbitrary. We could talk about man and his relationship to all kinds of things, but we'll pick out four and sort of trace these through uh, as we go. Um, what was man's relationship to sin before the fall of man? Okay, yeah, there was no sin. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a conversation between a husband and a wife with no sin. <laughs> Hard to imagine. I mean, no misgivings, no second guessing, no ill motives given, no ill motives assumed, uh, no clarification needed, just sweet, lovely, wonderful conversation. Can you imagine? It would have been wonderful. No sin. Um, in fact, I would say that uh, pre fall, man was able to sin. How do we know man was able to sin? Because he did. Yeah. Okay. Um, but for a while, we don't know how long, uh, there was no sin. We know it couldn't have been eons. Right? How do we know that Adam and Eve weren't, you know, uh, just enjoying life in the garden for thousands of years, hundreds of years, or even dozens of years? 
Could have been a day, could have been a week, we don't know. But why wasn't it a long time? He had children. Yeah, they were given the express command from God to multiply, fill the earth, put the kibosh on the earth, subdue it. The Hebrew word is kibosh. Um, in other words, they, they were uh, told to multiply the image-bearing representation of God on the earth through a multiplied humanity to govern God's created order. And so, because that didn't happen, if they'd been there very long, they would have been disobedient. And we would have had to fall anyway. So, there wasn't very long. Um, what was the relationship of mankind to work in the garden? It was good. By the way, uh, was there work before the fall? Is, is work uh, an element of the curse of God on man? No, there was work. What were some of the tasks God gave to mankind? Name the animals. Can you think about that for a moment? If you boil down all of the animals... Not to the species level, but to the genus level. Remember, uh, King Philip ate a bologna sandwich or whatever it was. Uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? Um, the biblical word for kind refers to genus, probably not species. So that boils down the number of names of animals quite a bit from what we might think of. Um, but still, if you boil it down to the genus level, that is a lot of animals. And in the afternoon... Adam names them all. Can you imagine coming up with syllables to represent something visually and then being able to remember what you called it? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I have five kids. <laughs> you, right? And, and Adam did that. Listen, sometimes we have the wrong conception that primitive people were dumb. That, that people that lived long time ago were silly. That is evolutionary garbage applied to humanity. The, the truth is, mankind, prior to genetic entropy, you, need, you realize in every generation, the, the, the gene code, the DNA of humanity, falls apart and deteriorates more and more and more. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. In fact, uh, geneticists today... Uh, talk about junk DNA. I don't believe there's anything uh, called junk DNA, like, uh, you know, these uh, just raw materials waiting for evolution to put them together and make something new. You're going to get a third arm, right? <laughs> the reality is that DNA is all corrupt, right? Your, your, your computer software doesn't get better over time. It gets corrupted. The human DNA is getting corrupted generation after generation after generation. All this junk DNA is all the stuff inside of us that's falling apart. And I believe it's why the, the, the progressive increase of susceptibility and vulnerability to disease is only on the rise. The only thing that sort of keeps it in check is the globalization of humanity uh, gets a lot more genetic input. That's a whole other story. But can you imagine what it was like with no genetic entropy, with no deterioration, how healthy, how smart would the first man and woman have been, right? We know Solomon was the wisest, except for Jesus. But you probably ought to put Adam near the top of the list, right? There's some really amazing studies. If you think about, um, it, 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 we'll go back to, to um, the, the whole idea of the Rain Man character from a, from a movie. It was based on a real guy who was an autistic savant, you know, and toothpicks uh, spill on the, the diner floor. And he says, 237. Just looks at him, 237. 
37 what? 37 through 50. Right? He sees the name of the waitress. And these accounts, by the way, were real to his life, if you read the back story on this. Um, and, and by her first and last name, knows her phone number from out of the phone book. How'd you know that by Reddit? What is the human mind capable of? And, and can you imagine, you know, there are people today with photographic memories and correlative memories. That means not only do they have a photographic memory, but they can take that information without conscious thought and correlate it to other things. And people with that kind of capacity usually are not great in social settings. Right? They, have, they have other things. Can you imagine Adam in the garden? Not dumb, right? And given the command to steward God's creation, name the animals, what else was he supposed to do? Tend the garden, cultivate it, and keep it. Okay, um, this is labor. This is work. But you know what? It was only fun all the time, and it was worship. What a, what a great thing that God gave as a gift to His image-bearing representative, His sub-regent on the earth. That that man was to be a a selfless, sinless, giving steward over the created order. He was to have dominion over it. Uh, that was embedded in the very idea of man being the image bearer of God in Genesis 1 and 2, that he would exercise dominion as a sub-region under God over the created order. Right? We, we see vestiges of that today. Uh, man wants to domineer, but it's tied up with sin. Or, or man wants to be lazy and not exercise appropriate dominion. Because it's tied up with sin. But here, dominion was only good all the time. Lordship was a good stewardship, sinless, selfless. What was man's relationship to the creation in the garden? Yeah, perfect, good. Um, we might say symbiotic, right? It's cooperative. The created order didn't fight back. It cooperated with man in the worship of God. Okay. What was man's relationship to God in the garden? Yeah, obedient, great. Um, I'm going to say immediate fellowship. Right? It was harmonious, no enmity, no strife. In fact, God was said to have walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden. There's nothing between God and man. It is immediate fellowship. It is not mediated by anything. Nothing in between. Okay? What a really remarkable state. It did not last long. Between each of these panels, there is going to be an event, significant event. So there's an event here. This big thing is an event. Okay? There's going to be another event here. And while these events are lines, right? It's just a, it's just a dot, a point in time. This was a duration of time. This is a point in time, right? Sin entered the world and death through sin. And so from this point on, every human being is spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead, Romans 5.12 says we all sin. And so we call this post-fall humanity. Post-fall humanity. And, and before, we, before we jump into the fall, well, we already have. Uh, before we talk about the fact that we all jumped into the fall, 
um, I want to think about some of the constituent parts of who we are. How did God make us? Uh, What capacities do we have? And what were they designed for? Let's think, first of all, about speech. Why did God give speech? By the way, Adam and Eve are having conversations with each other the first day they're alive. Adam's having conversations with God on the day he was born. And he's naming all the animals. And he's thinking about physics and science and gardening and whatever else he's supposed to be doing. Right? Um, I don't know if your newborns ever did anything like that. <laughs> James 3.9 says that, that our speech was given to us by God so that we would glorify him and be a blessing to others. Right? Um, we were given the gift of creativity. Now, only God creates ex nihilo, right? This, this Hebrew word bara, he creates, is only ever predicated of Yahweh, the God of the universe. Only he creates something out of nothing. Light that doesn't exist, light be. And something that doesn't exist obeys God by coming into existence. But man, there's another word for create, that man rearranges what God has created out of nothing. And so we even reflect God in this creative ability. You go to Genesis 4, and you see even after the fall, what is man doing very early on? Metallurgy? That is digging ore up out of the ground, refining it, and building stuff out of it. Musical instruments, music, art, creativity, all of that stuff is happening. Of course, in Genesis 4, you also have uh, polygamy, murder, empire building, you know, all the rest. Revenge. Um, but but very, we, we shouldn't, again, fall into this evolutionary thing that says man was simple in the beginning and now we're technologically advanced. No, the technological advance was at the beginning. And then everything just comes crashing down. By the way, you think about two world events that brought all of human technology to an utter halt. What were those two events? The flood and the Tower of Babel, right? We think about the evolutionary model. Yeah, there were cavemen and now we have iPhones. Okay, well, listen, I I believe in cavemen, cave paintings and, and people wearing animal skins and hunting and gathering. But think about what would have happened after the flood. You know, no more 7-Eleven. God scrubbed everything. Whatever technology, whatever buildings, whatever conveniences existed before the flood, totally scrubbed by God's judgment. And and after the Tower of Babel, uh, again, man's rebellion against God gets squashed by God and man is supernaturally transported to the four corners of the earth and lives as cavemen again. Where are they, where are they supposed to do when God puts them in Greenland or South America uh, or anywhere else. By the way, um, you, you see um, the, the Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat, uh, a pyramid-shaped thing. You see those things show up in the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Egyptians, after the Tower of Babel. Where do you think they got the idea? God just scattered them, and they tried to redo the very same rebellions they always did. Um, but God gave all of this creativity to mankind. God gave mankind a capacity for self-awareness and understanding, Right? You, you can get outside of yourself and think about, who am I? What am I doing here? Right? Dolphins don't do that. We have a sense of history and destiny. Uh, we understand the time, the past, the future. Uh, we can reminisce and we can hope. And this sense was given to us so that we might reflect on who God is and what he's done, that we can enjoy him. We've been given an intellect. Uh, we've been given an intellect for the active appreciation of God. 
right? Why does the human mind have so much capacity to, to take in information and revel in it, to enjoy it? Uh, because God is infinitely delightful and he's infinitely complex. And, and the human mind will never wrap itself around all that God is. But the fact that we have an intellect that was designed expressly for the glory of God in our appreciation of him. Reason and rational ability. Uh, these things were given to us to connect things logically. Uh, what a thrilling capacity when you think about how complex God is. Right? You think about God's imminence and his transcendence. He's here everywhere and he's infinitely beyond everything at the same time. Right? And, and we've been given an ability to think through those things. We were given a will. That's a capacity for choices. A capacity to choose one thing over the other. We have an intrinsic capacity to choose to do the things which bring honor to God. We've been given emotions. Think about this. A remarkable capacity, a palette of sort of flavors in the heart. To love, to hate, fear, sorrow, joy, excitement, delight, anger. It's a grand palette of these various feelings we have. And we, unlike animals, have the potential to align ourselves emotionally with the creator of the universe. Don't think that God doesn't emote. Right? An old classical definition of the immutability of God said God doesn't have feelings because if he had feelings, that would mean change. And since he's immutable, he can't change. Therefore, God doesn't have feelings. Okay, that's a nice logical deduction. The problem is the Bible says God has feelings. He grieves. Right? He, he sorrow. He experiences sorrow. Jesus wept. God rejoices. God delights. Uh, God has a palette of emotions that he expresses as well. And all without sin. We've been given the capacity for morality. That's an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. That was embedded in man before the fall, right? There's a reason Adam and Eve feel shame after the fall and want to cover themselves up through self-atonement. We've been given affections, the ability to be affected by things. Uh, really, uh, another way to talk about our emotions, but specifically um, our loves and our hates. What, what, what uh, drives love in us and what drives us to hate things. Um, a capacity for science is a gift to man, a desire and ability to wrestle with concepts unrelated to self, abstract things, right? You studied algebra in school. Have you used it since <laughs> other than trying to help your kids understand algebra, which they will use it when they try to help their kids understand algebra. Right? Anybody use algebra in the workplace? I don't want to leave you out. Okay. A little bit. Fantastic. See, it's not always abstract. Okay, but we have the ability to get outside of ourselves and be curious about things. Listen, a dolphin does not care about the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. What does a dolphin care about? The speed of anchovies. <laughs> right? It needs to survive. It needs to reproduce. But humans have the ability to think outside of ourselves with, with knowledge unrelated to us. What a remarkable gift. And then man has been given the gift of immortality. You understand that limestone has no life. Broccoli has no animated life. Right? Animals have animated life, but not eternal life. Uh, by the way, if, if you are a um, uh, vegetarian on, a, on moral grounds, I just want to disappoint you a little bit this morning. Right? If you've chosen not to eat chickens because chickens have feelings, you need to understand that about eight years ago, a study came out that discovered that broccoli has a primitive central nervous system and actually responds to painful stimuli. 
So you're not being nice to things that have feelings when you cut off a stalk of broccoli and then eat it. <laughs> but mankind was designed by God to exist forever into the future. And listen, man's eternal destiny is one of two paths. There's no in between. Man has been given the capacity for responsibility, lordship, dominion. Right, when we think about the first panel, uh, this gives us some insight into what David is saying in Psalm 8. Remember Psalm 8? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. When I think about man, <laughs> and then he goes into a psalm about the greatness of mankind. It's his commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. It's a reflective commentary, and it's a proleptic commentary. In other words, it's looking forward to the future. Look at what man was. Look at all that you've given him. You've given him dominion over the created order. That's still true during the fall, post-fall. Man is supposed to have dominion, but we just don't do it right. Man has been given a capacity for adoration, right? Why do we love things larger than life, bigger than ourselves? You stand at the base of Yosemite Falls and you go, whoa small and it's thrilling right uh junior high boys have hero posters michael jordan on the wall why do we do that we've been given a capacity for adoration right and what was that designed for the worship of god and if you don't choose to worship god you're going to worship something and the best gift of all that man has been given is a capacity for relationship to god god is a relational being Mankind has been given the ability to relate to God like no other thing on earth. And we walked and talked, we, Adam and Eve, walked and talked with God in the garden. Now let's think about panel two, after the fall. And I'll give you a quote from Thomas Boston here. The heart that was made according to God's own heart is now the reverse of it. A forge of evil imaginations, a sink of inordinate affections, and a storehouse of all impiety. Behold the heart of the natural man, as it is opened in our text. The mind is defiled, the thoughts of the heart are evil, the will and the affections are defiled. The imagination of the thoughts of the heart, that is, whatsoever the heart frames within itself by thinking, such as judgment, choice, purposes, devices, desires, every inward motion, or rather the frame of the thoughts of the heart, namely the frame, the make, the mold of these, is evil." From the first day to the last day, in this state, they are in midnight darkness. There is not the glimmering of the light of holiness in them. Not one holy thought can ever be produced by the unholy heart. Oh, what a vile heart is this. What a corrupt nature is this. The tree that always brings forth fruit, but never good fruit. Whatsoever soil it be set in, whatever pains be taken with it, must naturally be an evil tree. Think about all those capacities, all those abilities we just talked about. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 6-5. Listen to God's indictment on humanity. And, and, and no amount of self-esteem, pat yourself on the back and make yourself feel better in spite of the truth, language can get us out of this. No, I'm okay, you're okay, right? Conversation can get us away from God's indictment. The truth. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, 
that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, no one can say, I made a mistake, but my intentions were good. No. Man doesn't have good intentions. We don't have them. The the, the thoughts of his heart, the intentions of his heart, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, you know that Genesis 6-5 comes before the flood, right? And, And God brought the flood on the earth because of the wickedness of man on the earth. But fast forward to Genesis 8, post flood. Look at Genesis 8.21. Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is, present tense, evil from his youth. Now, there's only eight people in the world at this point. (laughs) Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And God's indictment against Noah... The, the one who is saved because he feared the Lord is that the, his intent, the intent of his heart. He carries the same genetic predisposition inherited from Adam and he passes it on to every subsequent generation. You can blame your parents for your sin and your kids can blame you. Right? We inherit a sin nature. And, and man in his natural state, when we think about what is man's relationship here to sin, what would we say about sin post-fall? Not able to what? To not sin. Man is not able to not sin. Natural man, after the fall, can do nothing but sin. How can we say that? Isn't there relative good? Uh, yeah, we have, we have a capacity and ability to think about relative good. The, the Boy Scout who helps the rural lady across the street, is that better than Adolf Hitler? Yes, absolutely. And by God's common grace, total depravity does not mean every human being is as bad as he possibly could be. Universal depravity means everybody's a sinner. Total depravity means every capacity of man is affected and infected by sin. It doesn't mean that you act out on everything that you could out of your nature. It just means that you can't do anything that's inherently pleasing to God. Right? The standard of what would be pleasing to God is that which God produces. Right? Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anything done apart from a right relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ is by definition sin. It is by definition not pleasing to God. The Boy Scout helping a little lady across the street is not pleasing to God if it's not done in a faith relationship to him through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not as bad as other things, and it's not as punishable as other things. Luke 12 makes it clear. Jesus said there are various degrees of punishment in hell. Mm-hmm. Right? Some will receive more lashes than others. It will be better. Slow down. It will be better for Tyre and Sidon. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the generation of Jews who rejected Messiah when he came. Right? There are degrees of evil. There are degrees of the ways we act out sin. Not everything is as bad as it could be. We have relative good. But think about the Boy Scout helping a little old lady across the street. Why is he doing what he's doing? 
For the glory of God. Uh, maybe. Why else? Yeah, he gets a merit badge. Think about that. He, he, gets, he gets a little emblem he can wear on his lapel that says, Hey, I did a good deed. I want everybody to know it. Look what I did. That's sin. That's sin. It's motivated by sin. The, the reward is sinful. The enjoyment of its reward is sinful. Now, uh, somebody acting like a Boy Scout metaphorically might not get a merit badge. But why we do what we do is critical. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Philippians 3, Paul says... His uh, conduct before his people under the law of God was blameless, not before God, but before men. And then Paul went on to call it rubbish, garbage, scubalon, trash. And so when we say that man, un un after the fall, before Christ, is not able to not sin, we mean that everything he does is in the category of not being pleasing to the Lord and only being condemnable. Not necessarily as bad as it could be, um, but all a liability. Uh, what is man's relationship to work after the fall? That's right, work stinks, right? Uh, cursed by God, right? What did God say to Adam? Cursed be the ground because of you, and by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread out the ground. Okay, That's a curse and a blessing, by the way. Um, Adam, you do get to eat. <laughs> But, but it's not going to be easy. And listen, if, if you think that your present job, your present occupation is the problem, you need to know that the grass truly is browner on the other side. <laughs> right? Your next job stinks too. Why? Because it's all under the curse of God. It's all post-fall occupation. And if your present job right now is tending to a three-year-old, we can talk about that one later, um, whatever your occupation is, whatever the labor of our hands is, it's under the curse of God. And, and, and natural man uh, lives by this toil. And it stinks. What is man's relationship to the creation? Man rebelled against God, and the creation is in rebellion against man. There's a fight, right? You know this if you garden. There's a fight in your garden. Your roses wilted this summer. I think I lost four of mine. Um, weeds grow. Bug. I had, a, I had a grub that I couldn't see above ground eat the root of my artichoke plant. And one day my artichoke plant, this tall, just goes, and had been snipped in half at the bottom by a grub. Oh, Genesis 3, the curse. Right? The, the creation is in rebellion. There's weeds. The dogs bite. The bees sting. Right? You, you try to think of your favorite things. It doesn't undo the curse. You can sing that song all you want. Um, and the creation is in rebellion against man. Okay, what is man's relationship to God after the fall? Okay, enemies. No fellowship. Broken. Enmity. Children of wrath. Right? We, we, we are suppressing God's truth in unrighteousness. 
fellowship is broken. What a what a tragic thing to to walk out of the garden by God's command to, to hear God say, "You don't belong in here anymore. Go away." And then a, an angel with a flaming sword barring the entrance. It's like Jesus' words at the end of time for those who reject Him. Depart from me. I never knew you. What tragedy. right? We, we appreciate the tragedy of the fall when we appreciate was man, what man was originally intended to be. Let's think about these capacities of man for a little bit. Uh, speech. right? What was speech designed for? Glorify God. Bless others. Listen to James 3. The tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame. It is full of deadly poison, a restless evil. And you know this, we set things on fire with our speech. Think about man's creativity, this incredible capacity to reflect and bring glory to God's genius through creativity has been corrupted. Music, art, engineering, all of it. What's it used for? I mean, you you can admire the the creative prowess of mankind in, in art and music and things that we build and realize it's all for sin. Right, post-fall. Think about our ability for self-awareness and understanding. We're supposed to be able to understand our place in the universe as sub-regents of God and have dominion over the created order, and instead we worship self. Right, everything becomes self-gratification, self-worship. We want to live independently of God. We become autonomous rather than servants of God and worshipers of God, dependent on Him, we want to live for ourselves. This whole idea of a sense of history and destiny is corrupted. Uh, we no longer uh, reflect on the past so that we have an, a right view of who we are and where we sit and think about the future correctly. Uh, there is a carpe diem, right? We live for the now. Get it while you can. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. We, we become slaves to Darwinian self-preservation or temporal gluttony. I got to get everything I want right now. The intellect is corrupt. Listen, you should never think that a, a scientist who walks in the laboratory, puts on the white laboratory coat, somehow is able to undo all of the fall with that white laboratory coat and become objective, unbiased, right? The scientist carries all the bias into the laboratory with him that he got from Adam post-fall. We should never think that that the human mind, apart from a renewed dependence on God's thoughts, can think accurately. You've seen the old commercial. Maybe you're old enough to have seen the commercial. The, the public awareness campaign against drugs. There's a frying pan and an egg. Right? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. You remember that one? Okay. Um, our brain has been fried by depravity. We don't think straight. We don't think right. And that's affected our reason and our rational ability. Think about how illogical it is when men reject God. Uh, Romans 1.18 is clear. Men know God exists, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because their deeds were evil. John 3.19-21, Jesus said men loved darkness rather than light. How backwards is that? And you can't erase the knowledge of God in every human heart. But, but the one who decides, you know what, I don't think God exists. 
knows that God exists and becomes schizophrenic over it and has to do everything he can to rewrite what he knows, reprogram what God has programmed in the human heart. Man is terribly irrational. The Bible says, Jeremiah 17, 9, we're shrewd to do evil, but good we do not know. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Again, the heart is that inner man, the, the mind, emotion, will complex that is the real you on the inside. Think about that capacity for will, uh, an ability to make choices and do things. It was designed to bring God glory in our ability to choose good over evil. And what do we do? John 5.40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. How the irrationality of depravity has affected the will. Look, here's a free gift of eternal life. No, I will not have that. Can't make Think about emotions. This well of our soul's feelings and desires designed as a, a flavor palette for the increased enjoyment of God in all of his various capacities, all of his various attributes. It is polluted. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. We love what God hates and we hate what God loves. We're totally backwards in our emotions. By the way, uh, emotions are good. Emotions are good if you put them in the right place. Just as a little extra side sermon. You don't have to pay any extra for this. But I want you to think about these capacities of man in a chain working together. Right? The mind, the emotions, the will. The mind thinks about what is true. The emotions provide sort of the fuel additive to the truth that then step on the gas for the will. Your choice is to actually do things with the truth. Okay, think about um, abortion is awful. Abortion is evil. Abortion is murder. Um, it, what, a, what a terrible thing. It, it, whatever whatever uh, side in your own experiences you've been on this, it is tragic, heartbreaking, terrible. What if you didn't feel anything about it? Would you be moved to pray? proclaim the gospel, to adopt, to do whatever you could in, in your part of God's economy and all of this. No, the, see, the emotions provide the fuel for the truth to take action. Does that make sense? This is the chain in which your emotions belong. They're good. It's appropriate to weep with those who weep. It's appropriate to rejoice with those who rejoice. It takes a lot of self-control to exercise emotions properly, Right? And listen, sometimes you're emotional. I just, I can't help how I feel. You know, the Bible says you have to. Direct your heart in the way, my son. You actually have to tell your emotions what to do. And you do that with the truth. And your emotions provide the fuel for the truth, acting in accordance with the truth through the will. Right? The emotions are a terrible place to discern what's true. And they're a terrible vehicle to tell you what to do. Right? Don't put the emotions here. Don't put the emotions there. Leave them where they belong. If you want a helpful resource on thinking through this, Faith and Feelings by Brian Borgman. Have you read it? Isn't it good? You just finished it. Okay. Bethany, do you commend it? Oh, Bethany says, oh yeah. Faith and Feelings by Brian Borgman. All right. Where were we? Uh, morality. We have an innate sense of good and evil given to us by God. What is that like after the fall? Janet, what time are we supposed to be done? 8.30? Okay, um, 
we know what's right and what's wrong, but you know that gets reprogrammed after the fall? We get this all backwards. You know, when I was uh, in grade school, uh, we were all told to snip the six-pack rings. Do you remember six-pack rings? Right? They're plastic rings that held six cherry Cokes together or whatever beverage you were drinking. And, and you had to cut them. Why did we have to cut them? Which animals? The bottlenose dolphin started this whole thing. Because bottlenose dolphin got its beak, bill, lips. What is that thing out there? <laughs> Stuck in a six-pack ring. And so somehow the six-pack ring unsnipped in your kitchen garbage can made it to the nose of a bottlenose dolphin and then rewrote our morality collectively and we all obediently did that. Any, anybody besides me do that? Somebody, okay, yeah, see? Our consciences became captive. Do you know what I read about a year ago? There was no bottlenose dolphin that got its nose stuck in a thing. You did that. You cut faithfully. Your conscience was bound. Your morality was rewritten. If you had seen somebody not snipping the, the thing, what did you think? You're killing dolphins. There's right and there's wrong. Right? My kids are being taught today, eating steak kills polar bears. Right? Last time I checked, last time I checked, polar bears are not where we get ribeyes. <laughs> What's the connection, Carla? Climate change. Um, more cows means more methane gas, which means uh, melting polar ice caps, which means polar bears have no more icebergs to sit on to go get seals, which means polar bears die. You eat steak fajitas, you're killing polar bears. It's a new morality. Listen, our world has the capacity for right and wrong. They just get north and south backwards. They call evil good and good evil. Listen, all of that should be a testimony to God exists. Why? Because methane gas kills polar bears and I'm not eating steak. No, because you actually can think that way. The fact that you can think about right and wrong ought to remind you there are categories of right and wrong, even if you've got the categories reprogrammed. Right? And to say, oh, no, 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 no. That's so judgmental to have a category of right and wrong. You should never do that. You know that's a statement of right and wrong? That is the most judgmental statement you can make. And mankind has this capacity for morality and gets it backwards. Think about our capacity for science. This thirst for knowledge, our ability to study. They've been employed in every kind of vice and godless pursuit imaginable. It, it, it's all, all our, our entire scientific endeavor today as, a, as, a, as an enterprise is based on an anti-supernaturalist presupposition. That is, I have pre-decided... Nothing supernatural. What kind of science is that? I thought the scientific method was to make observations. And, and even when I come up with a theory, it's got to be something that's experimental, reproducible. But you start out with a presupposition that there's nothing supernatural going on. That's not science. That is an anti-God bias from the beginning that's grounded in a heart opposed to God and rebellion. And, and how great science could be. I mean, just staggering. You see those old pictures, black and white pictures from New York City when they're building skyscrapers and all the guys on a beam, on an I-beam, eating their lunch? It's like, wow, men built that stuff. Somebody 
dug iron ore out of the ground, refined it, built steel I-beams. Somebody else made steel rivets. Somebody climbed up there and put all those things together, and then people show up in an office building and they type stuff. That's crazy. Right? If you got stranded on a desert island and wanted to make a number two pencil, how would you do it? Have you looked at that? Have you looked at the supply chain and the, the, the complex construction that has to take place to build a number two pencil? Staggering. And we take these things for granted. How great could science be if it were unleashed from the curse and the fall and the depravity of man? This capacity for dominion we abuse, we neglect. Uh, man dominates over things through selfishness and greed rather than selfless love and a reflection of God's glory and his stewardship over creation. Our capacity for adoration, of course, is, is wrong. We worship everything under the stone, under the sun. Sticks, stones, the sun itself, uh, athletes. At the bottom, we, we really worship ourselves. It's a rejection of God and all idolatry. And then this capacity for relationship with God, just broken. Listen to Isaiah 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not so short that he cannot save. His ears are not so dull that he cannot hear. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God. You've got bloodstained hands. What a tragedy. John Calvin said, We grant that God's image was not totally annihilated and destroyed in man after the fall, yet it was so corrupted that whatever remains is frightful deformity. And we know that mankind is still made in the image of God. Every time a baby is born, image of God. Genesis 9-6 is post-fall, post-flood. And God says, don't kill man. Or else, capital punishment. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. Right? So, the image of God remains in this panel. But marred beyond all recognition. Right? And God still loves the image. Alright, let's go to panel 3. What separates panel two and panel three, or in the blue chart, um, what separates panel one and panel two is this event, right? You've got the brown line coming down. That is a point in time, single dot, right? There's no gradual process of becoming a Christian like in Roman Catholicism. Hope you make it if you try hard enough over time. This is a single moment in time, instantaneous work of God called new birth or regeneration, Right? You don't get into heaven without regeneration. Once regeneration happens, you never go back on it. It never gets unregenerated. Right? And it is a work of God solely from beginning to end. He does this work. And it has all of the effects that are down here, really on the first two panels in this whole chart. And this, this again, is, is just a summary and a sampling of the things that come with regeneration. Things like adoption. You are immediately adopted into God's family with all the blessings and privileges. Things like justification. You are declared instantaneously to be righteous. As if you had never done anything wrong and as if you had always done everything right. God credits to your account in that moment forever Christ's perfect righteousness. As he credited to Christ's account all your sins, past, present, future. This is the moment of salvation. This is when eternal life happens. Do you realize, Christian, that eternal life began when you were born again? And it never ends. Right? John eleven twenty six. He who believes has eternal life. And if you believe in me, you will never die. Right? Eternal life starts right here. 
and goes through this event marker, which is your homegoing, right? We, we call that death, but for the Christian, uh, this word death gets renamed. 42 different euphemisms describing death for the Christian in the New Testament, by my count. There may be more, but I counted 42. Different ways to say, <laughs> absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Unbelievers, that's death, first death. And then there's a second death, lake of fire. But for the Christian, eternal life starts right here, panel three. So we would call this post-fall, post-conversion, right? And we're going to add a word to our, our chart up here a little bit. Um, pre-fall man, is he in a mixed or an unmixed condition? Or to say it another way, does he have one nature or two natures? Okay. He is unmixed, one nature. What about this guy? Unmixed, one nature. This is the weird panel. This is the really weird one. And, and, and it doesn't seem weird because it's all you've ever known as a Christian. But in the, in the span of your life, this one's small, tiny, right? Um, if you got saved later in life, maybe this one's smaller than that one. Or if you got saved early in life, maybe this one's a little bit bigger than that one. But in terms of how long you'll actually live, um, you were never in panel one, but you were in panel two for a little bit of time. You're in panel three for a little bit of time. Right? So when, when we're talking about where we exist right now, we're talking about a sliver of your existence. It's just not very long. In fact, soon you will have been here much, much longer than you've been here. Very soon. And so I know this is where the the, the hardship is, because it's where we exist right now. It's We live under the curse of God. We, we live under the curse on creation. We exist with residual depravity in us. There's a fight. There's a battle because we live in a mixed condition. We live here with two natures, right? This is where we can shepherd our hearts. This is where we must shepherd our hearts. But it's so temporary. It's so short. It's just for a little while while we sojourn. Uh, what is man's relationship post-conversion to sin? Able to not sin. You have a new ability, Christian. You are a slave of sin over there. Here, you're set free. You're no longer a slave of sin. You actually can be pleasing to the Lord. I don't mean sinless perfection. Right? That's not possible in this life. But I do mean you can do things that actually please the Lord. Ephesians 2.10. After we've been saved by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone, we understand in Ephesians 2.10, we were created by God as his workmanship to walk in the good works which he prepared for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Listen, Christian, you can. 
You can please the Lord. You have new abilities to not sin. What a remarkable gift in salvation. New desires, new loves, new affections, a renewable mind, Romans 12, 2. We have our mind renewed by the word of God so that we're not squeezed into the mold of this world. Right? We're putting, we have put off the old man. By the way, uh, this guy right here, the, the Greek term for this in the New Testament is the paleos anthropos. Miss Myers, paleos. Aren't you a paleontology student? Okay, what is that? I put you on the spot. Old, okay? Old man, the old man. Okay? Um, over here, new creature. And what's new, again, is what has been added. New heart, new nature, new loves, new affections. Um, what is man's relationship to work in this panel? It still stinks. It does. Why? Because work is under the curse of God, Genesis 3. But the Christian can have fun. And, and by fun, I mean God-glorifying enjoyment. Work can be worship. Right? You can build widgets in a way that glorifies God. You can build widgets under a demanding, unreasonable boss who doesn't like you and enjoy it and worship. Why? Because he's not your real boss. You work for Jesus. It's different. By the way, um, we think about John Calvin sometimes in terms of five points, which he didn't write. People after him sort of summarize things in five points. Um, maybe you think of John Calvin in terms of the Institutes. Anybody read the Institutes or... A gold to read the Institute someday. It's on your shelf. You should. It's good. It's worshipful. It's devotional. It's great. Um, but one of the things John Calvin did that, that Western civilization appreciates, not theologians, just like the secular world looks back at Calvin and says, wow, his ideology changed Western civilization. Because one of the things he promoted was that uh, for the person who loves God, every occupation can be worshipped. Right? And, and in his day, in medieval Europe, the idea was only the priestly class worships God. All the widget makers, all the shoe clerks, all those people, they just they, they do the vulgar and the mundane, and it has nothing to do with God. Poor saps. Right? Calvin said, no, everything's worship. And liberated the working man in terms of his status before God and his place in society. It was revolutionary stuff, but it's biblical. Right? It just sort of got lost for a while. All right, what is man's relationship to the created order? Creation. The dog bites the bee stings, right? Um, our bodies are falling apart. Uh, my garden still has weeds, even after I got saved. You know, grubs, eat the artichokes, all the rest. Um, but, but we find out in Romans 8 that Creation is groaning. And what is creation groaning in anticipation for? The revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the dolphins can't wait till you look like Jesus. Because when Christians are conformed to the image of Christ, creation itself will be set free from its subjection, its slavery to corruption. Romans 8 says. So there's still a symbiotic relationship between the Christian and the created order. We still are to live out 
something of the reflection of God and the dominion over creation, it's still good to get uh, iron ore out of the ground and make stuff. Um, but most of this enjoyment is anticipation. It's hope. Right? I'm looking for it. And hope in the New Testament is not wishful thinking. Right? I hope I get that red wagon for Christmas and then it doesn't come through. Hope in the New Testament is a confident assurance in what God has promised and will happen. Right? It's a forward-looking anticipation. So our relationship to the created order is redeemed, but not fully yet. Okay, what's our relationship to God here? Reconciliation. But in some sense, still mediated fellowship. Mediated fellowship. Uh, that is, Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf, uh, Romans 8, making intercession for us at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit, who indwells us, intercedes on our behalf in prayer. There is mediated fellowship. But our fellowship with God is not yet what it will be when there will be once again, like the garden but better, immediate fellowship. By the way, one of my favorite themes to trace through the Bible, if you're looking for a theme uh, to, to work through is just answer the question from scripture as you read through where does God dwell where does God dwell in the garden God dwelt with man as you walk through biblical history uh, you come to places where God comes down into history but then you have things like the tabernacle a tent in the wilderness where God would choose to specially manifest his presence meanwhile his special presence his his sort of home base, his throne room in heaven is where God dwells. But God's also omnipresent, but he manifests his special, visible, tangible, audible presence in various places, a tabernacle in the wilderness, a temple in Solomon's day. Think about what happens when God tabernacled among us, right? The word became flesh, right? God dwelt with man in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, the birth of the church at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit permanently indwells believers. So that 1 Corinthians 3, in good Texan, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You collectively, the church. And in 1 Corinthians 6, you individual Christian, singular, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where does God dwell? God dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is in believers. But then we go to the last panel and, and think through what is it going to be like in God's very manifest presence, unmediated fellowship forever and ever with joy and delight. Let's think about this last uh, category, the eternal state, eternal life. And obviously there's uh, maybe another panel missing or half a panel when we think about the eternal destiny of man apart from Christ. It's not really the focus of the blue panel. But if you're explaining this to an unbeliever, you, you wouldn't want to leave out the reality that not everybody gets to this panel. In fact, wide is the path, broad is the path, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Okay, we're talking about believers here in the eternal state. What is the relationship to sin? Not able to sin. Can you imagine that? Think again through all those capacities. Can you imagine speech and communication without even the ability to misunderstand, 
miscommunicate, have bad motives, try to get under somebody's skin, take revenge, speak ill. There's none of that. And walk through all the capacities of man and think about what that's going to be like here. Unable. Okay, what's man's relationship to work? All fun, all the time. There will be work in heaven. Creation. What is man's relationship to creation? New heavens, new earth, no curse. Mosquitoes, wasps, hornets. Maybe they'll take a different form. No mayonnaise. You know, I mean, all this stuff that's part of it. All this stuff is part Or my taste buds will change. Maybe that's no more sadness, sorrow, sickness, or pain. Why? The old things have gone away. Um, no more creation and rebellion to her Lord. Creation's Lord is man. Man's Lord is God. Man will be a steward and subregent of God, an image-bearing, dominion-keeping steward of the universe for God's glory. And the creation will rebel. Okay, man's relationship to God, again, unmediated fellowship. This is the theme of the Bible. I will be their God, they will be my people. Jesus said eternal life is this, that they may know you and the one whom you sent, John 17, 3. To, to know God, to love God, to explore him for all of eternity. Listen, heaven will not be boring because our finite minds with renewed ability, with renewed capacity, ration, reason, logic, intellect, all the rest, will never exhaust the infinite nature and complexities of the God of the Bible. You'll never be bored in heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, day two is better than day one. In ever-increasing infinite delight, it gets better and better and better and better. We just haven't experienced anything like that here. We live in this panel, right? Which is a place, because we have two natures, because we have residual depravity, but also because we're not slaves of sin and because you're a new creature. We can shepherd our hearts and we must shepherd our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this truth you've revealed to us about ourselves. Thank you for access to you through your word. And we pray that you would equip these ladies to do these things well for your glory, uh, that their discipline in these matters would affect generations to come of faithful servants of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.